Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Tony Herndon from Virginia Commonwealth University talking about prenatal hydronephrosis. Hi, it's my pleasure to introduce today uh, Dr. Tony uh, Herndon from VCU. He's going to be talking about prenatal hydronephrosis, um, which is a really important and interesting topic. So thank you very much for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. So today I wanted to give a comprehensive overview of prenatal urinary tract dilation or hydronephrosis. And I'll specifically focus on things that are changing. So uh, when I went through this, you know, 20 something years ago is a little bit different approach. And the main things are the roles of antibiotics with respect to, are they a benefit, which patients are we using them on? And the other is upper tract imaging. So the goals will be to discuss the uh, association between dilation of the kidney and urinary tract infection, impact of antibiotics, and the role of imaging once the kids are born with respect to the timing of the imaging and those sorts of things. So in terms of grading systems, we have two that we currently uh, use that are combined to, to create the urinary tract dilation uh, grading system. It's a combination of the uh, Society for Fetal Urology system, which is a more subjective system that looks at parenchymal thickness and dilation of the collecting system. And the APD system, which of course is an objective system. So these two are kind of combined together so you get the best of both worlds. And the layout is uh, prenatal and postnatal. And at this point, uh, I'd like to give thanks to one of my former residents who actually went into PGurology. He may be on the call, I'm not sure. But uh, initially, this is how we came up with the urinary tract dilation algorithm. So these are um, the prenatal findings that help us uh, classify risk and postnatal findings on the ultrasound. And with that, then we create this uh, evaluation and management scheme. So Matt Timberlake is the resident, and when I was at UVA, all this was in a table format. So you just read the table. So Matt came to me and said, well, this doesn't make sense. And I said, well, what doesn't make sense? You know, it's in English and it's a table. And he said, well, no one's gonna understand what you're talking about. I said, okay. He reminded me of one of my own kids. I said, well, why don't you create something that makes sense? So. He developed this off the timeout chart that was on the OR wall. And basically it was green, yellow, and red. And green is uh, good to go. And so that's where if you look at this system, all these findings where we have APD less than uh, 15 and only one central calyx uh, dilation, you're at P1 or low risk and so forth. And yellow is caution. And here that's the intermediate risk. And then red, of course, is stop. There's probably a problem. Now on the prenatal side, um, the obstetricians felt that they couldn't classify things as, as um, in such detail because the fetus is moving and uh, measuring thickness is difficult and those sorts of things. So you basically have two risk groups, low and increased. Okay, so 
So this is the algorithm that we came up with. This is published in a um, open format on the journal. And I can certainly send this out to folks if you haven't already seen this. So one of the things that came out of this meeting that we had that was a multi-specialty meeting uh, that involved OB, nephrology, urology, and radiology, defining what was normal postnatally. We had all this data prenatally, what was normal. This dates back to Crumble Home and folks that looked at this in the early 90s, but we still had nothing postnatally. So this resulted in a lot of testing that was done uh, probably inappropriately uh, with respect to finding a significant outcome that, that you could change and created a lot of anxiety for the patients that prompted more testing. So we came up with less than 10 millimeters. That's an acceptable degree of dilation of the kidney that is considered to be physiologic. Of course, you would have no central dilation of the renal pelvis or the calyces with that regard or ureter in the bladder being normal. So this alone allows us to reclassify patients. The majority of the patients that were in the old SFU-1 classification now probably are going to be considered normal. And that's probably about 60% of the patients that we would see. So this Venn diagram represents where we're going to go within this talk. The first thing I'll discuss is the role of antibiotics and urinary tract infection. We know that increasing grades of urinary tract infection have been associated with, uh, excuse me, increasing grades of dilation have been associated with UTI. Semensky looked at this a number of years ago and the rate was about double if you had high grade versus low grade. The question is, does prophylaxis help us prevent this? So uh, Louis Braga looked at this a number of years ago. This was a systematic review. And remember the issue with that is you're subject to the studies that may be low quality. You're trying to group these together. In the event, there were about 4,000 patients. He felt and found that prophylaxis really had no benefit on infection rate for low-grade kidney dilation. However, if you looked at high-grade kidney dilation, it decreased the infection rate, uh, cut it in half. These numbers are almost identical to the river trial, incidentally, for those with reflux. Other studies have looked at this. This is a retrospective study of uh, Dan, Hurst, Paul McGurian before they left Dartmouth. They looked at about 500 patients retrospectively. Most patients were managed with prophylaxis. Overall infection rate was 17%, so it's pretty high. Prophylaxis approached significance, but it wasn't significant. However, if you look, this was one of the first groups to look at ureteral dilation, and they found this to be an independent uh, risk factor for infection if the dilation was greater than 12 millimeters. Equally, they found that prophylaxis decreased the infection rate. And more to come on that, because we've recently found that in unpublished data with, with the large registry that we run. Uh, folks in Canada, again, looked at a systematic review, looked at uh, different studies than they did previously, and again, around 4,000 patients, and they found that if you look at the UTI rates, overall prophylaxis really had no impact, 9.9 .9 versus 7.5 percent, and they concluded that the use of prophylaxis was not evidence-based. However, there may be a role for high-grade kidney dilation. We 
Currently, I uh, have two large registries, or we did. They're now combined into one, actually. But uh, for the purposes of this talk, there were two, and they were assessing the risk factors for infection, the role of prophylaxis, and postnatal imaging. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Z, who's now joined me here at PCU, she was a resident at UVA. When we looked at this data, we had a little over 200 patients from four centers, and the median follow-up was around 12 months. We found that about 9% of patients had an infection. Uh, most of these were females. And interestingly though, 45% breakthrough UTI. So prophylaxis might not have helped them. Significant predictors of infection were female gender, the circumcision status of the patient, and high-grade uh, kidney dilation. This chart represents the decay curve for infection, and we found that close to 90% of the infections occurred within the first year of life. And certainly this may have implications for those that you do put on prophylaxis. Factors that were not significant were prophylactic antibiotics, presence of reflux, renal duplication, and interestingly, ureteral dilation. Now, Louis Braga equally had a uh, registry at McMaster and his follow-up a little bit longer, around 18 months. And mean age, um, 6.1 months for the urinary tract infection when they develop, again, demonstrating that these occur at a very young age. Risk factors similar in some respect to female gender, uh, intact foreskin. However, he did find that prophylaxis appeared to help and ureteral dilation and reflux were significant risk factors. So when you have these two disparate uh, results, you ask, well, why are these studies different? One example to P-Gerology uh, have a fairly low threshold with respect to primary care. In Canada, I think there's a higher threshold over 50% of patients in Lewis's uh, registry are high-grade kidney dilation. Uh, we have a, a much lower rate with that respect. I think this does uh, translate, not all the patients in our study were screened because they were very low-grade kidney dilation. And therefore, uh, we know that the risk of infection is low with low-grade kidney dilation. So by definition, we're gonna have a lower rate. And, and equally, if you have high-grade kidney dilation, your incidence of reflux screening is increased, your incidence of reflux diagnosis increased, thus your risk of infection. In addition, we know that there's inconsistent use of prophylaxis. Now, more recently, this is data from the registry that's uh, going to be presented at the AUA and published in the journal as an abstract, and I feel comfortable presenting it. Uh, this is registry data that now has combined uh, six medical centers and the primary outcome being UTI. And this is looking specifically at UPJ-like urinary tract dilation. This group, majority are males, which we would predict, and 37% uh, high grade. So again, a little bit lower than what Lewis has just alone in his registry. Five-year UTI rate around 5%. And similarly, we found that prophylaxis really didn't impact the rate of UTI. And again, females had a higher preponderance. And as we all would guess, high grade had a higher percentage than low grade. So again, fairly consistent findings. But the interesting theme here is that prophylaxis may not be providing the benefit. 
and I don't really have to speak to anyone other than Hillary to know the impact of prophylaxis is probably not great. And, and so uh, I know she's probably happy to see this data. So what's the future? I think it does appear that prophylaxis will have more of a limited role with respect to uh, use with uh, the reducing urinary tract dilation in patients with prenatal kidney dilation. Uh, we do know that reproducible risk factors are female gender high-grade kidney dilation and circumcised or in intact foreskin. Areas of future work and work that we've submitted to the ESPU are the impact of reflux and ureteral dilation. And we are showing some positive correlation there and more to come on that and uh, with respect to those results. So moving on to lower urinary tract imaging or VCUG, uh, we do know from data when this registry started, which was, you can see the date about uh, 20, what, uh, 21 years ago, that the incidence of reflux and prenatal kidney dilation is about 30%. And we know this because we used to screen essentially every patient. Equally, we know that postnatally, if you screen patients that have a normal ultrasound, so they had prenatal hydro, postnatally it resolved, you got a VCUG, 25% of those patients will still have reflux. So the degree of dilation, a very poor discriminator of those who have reflux. Elizabeth Yerkes, who was a year ahead of me at Indiana for fellowship, when she was at Vanderbilt, they had a much less aggressive screening process. And they felt that the screening did not help uh, them uh, decrease the incidence of uh, infection with respect to identifying reflux and putting those patients on prophylaxis. So the question is, can we adopt an active surveillance protocol to patients with reflux that we pick up prenatally? Uh, we do this similarly in patients that are older and safely. Chris Cooper's published uh, work on this about 20 years ago, and, and Dave Kitchens and I looked at this with David Joseph about 10 years ago, and it's safely done in girls mainly that have reflux that have been stable on prophylaxis. The other question is, should we be concerned about reflux in low-risk populations? So African-American females have a low probability of having reflux. Circumcised boys have a low incidence of infection even when they have reflux. So the question is, should they be screened? So this is a VCUG that uh, this patient was, when I was in Alabama, that, that I was screening everyone. This patient had bilateral P1 urinary tract dilation, so formerly SFU2. So pretty minimal kidney dilation. And this is a patient that today I normally would not obtain a VCUG upon. So the point of showing this is this is what you're going to miss if you don't screen everyone. And if you look at prenatally detected reflux, it has a completely different natural history than reflux that we see in girls that present with urinary tract infection. This tends to occur in boys, majority is high grade. However, a significant portion uh, dramatically decrease or resolve within the first uh, year to 18 months of life, and there's a low infection rate. So all this has to be factored in in terms of the screening process. So the future of screening will be that I think will be very selective in the use of lower urinary tract imaging. I think there's a paradigm shift with respect to who we image. This will be based on the risk of UTI 
instead of the probability of finding reflux, which is about 30%. And that's easy to discuss in a lecture. Uh, the issue is it's the practicality of implementing this. A majority of patients, of course, are not born at tertiary care centers. They're born in the community. And so it's really important to let the parents be aware that uh, the decision to place on prophylaxis or obtain a VCG, uh, that doesn't mean if we do not do it, we don't think they have reflux. We just think they are at low risk of infection. So that has to be kind of factored into this whole amalgam of if the child has a fever, they need to get a urine culture because they may have reflux if they weren't screened. That conversation has to be taken place on, on the front line, maybe by the primary care physician. So and that's hard to, to, to translate to the pediatrician who's not up to date on all this data like we are. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's important. So moving on to transient kidney dilation and the use of uh, renal ultrasound. So we know that the most common type of kidney dilation is transient or that that resolves. If you look prenatally, we know that about a third of this dissolves, uh, resolves in the third trimester and anywhere to a third to 50% of it resolves postnatally. This is data from the uh, SFU registry and you can see for grade one, not a surprise to most of us on this lecture, uh, almost all of it resolves by two years of age. And if you look at grade two, it's by four years of age. And not that this is a, a novel finding, but when the parents come in and you tell them they're at low risk of having infection, low risk of needing surgery, all they really wanna know is how long do we need to keep getting ultrasounds. And so I think having these resolution curves is important. You know, for grade one, you could tell them you know, we don't expect much, and certainly after two years of age, you're probably not going to need follow-up, and for grade two, it's around four years of age. Now, looking at Lewis's data, again, that paralleled our data, most of his patients were males, and the resolution was very similar. Interestingly, the P3 resolution rate was very high, 73%. I think some of ours in the U.S. are maybe not given time to resolve, and, and, and we accelerate that with surgical intervention and there are debates about that with respect to risk of renal deterioration. And that's very much um, hasn't been ironed out yet. So what's the future of transient kidney dilation? Uh, we know that most patients with mild disease will improve and a majority will completely resolve. And again, I think this is important to fold into that conversation that we have with the parents with, uh, expect expectations with uh, respect to, to follow-up. So moving on now to the last uh, area that I'll focus on today and that's pre uh, UPJ obstruction and again this is the second most common uh, finding that we diagnose when we have urinary tract dilation anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. It's one of the only conditions that we see that the degree of dilation correlates with the finding. And as you can see, increasing grades of kidney dilation, increasing significance of disease. And this is very different than reflux where the, as I demonstrated previously, the degree, degree of kidney dilation correlates very poorly 
with the diagnosis of reflux, but for UPJ obstruction, it does, and, and for uh, ureteral or UVJ obstruction, it does as well. So I think it's always helpful and, and this uh, study by Dr. Dillon uh, came out from Great Ormond Street when I was a resident in 1998, and uh, this was kind of the hallmark study that allowed us to hang our hat on a, on a certain value, APD measurement, that we could use to predict those that may need surgical intervention. So this was a randomized trial that was set up, and the inclusion were patients that had greater than 40% function, or they had surgery if they had less, and then 15 millimeters of APD. So the uh, surgeon, uh, the surgery and the observation group were equally split for the most part, 39 and 36. In the surgical group, 38% maintained function or greater than 40%, and all of the patients had a decrease in kidney dilation. Now for the junior residents on this um, Zoom or presentation, uh, the conventional wisdom is that if you operate on kidney dilation with respect to kidney function, you're not going to improve function. You're basically going to stabilize function. So it, it's not a convection that, that, that we feel that, that if the kidney is decreasing function, you're going to operate, that's going to go back up. That's not something that we believe happens. Now on the observation arm, interestingly, uh, 12 of the patients had stable function and dilation but 17 improved uh, dilation significantly, and only seven required surgery because of a decrease in kidney function. And that range of APD was 20 to 40. So since then, several studies have looked at, well, what's the target range of APD dilation that's reasonable sensitivity and specificity? Uh, these studies here are the Dillon study. Doug Copeland looked at this, and Dr. Um, uh, Shamaraz looked at this as well, and they found that 15 millimeters was a reasonable uh, value postnatally. Uh, more recently, um, a systematic review of five studies that kind of combined uh, the three I mentioned and two others, using a 15 millimeter cutoff, they found a sensitivity of around 81% specificity 78% using a 95% confidence interval. And with this, they felt that uh, under subgroup analysis that this postnatal APD was a better predictor of surgical intervention than prenatal APD. So again, we're hanging our hat on 15 millimeters is, is a patient that uh, may be of concern. Uh, certainly we still do not operate on a majority of these patients. So in terms of follow-up, uh, with renal ultrasound. So a lot of work was done in the early 90s to look at uh, renal scintigraphy as a means to differentiate those patients that needed surgery from those that did not need surgery. But over the years, it became clear that there were some, um, some, some issues with that test that, that it really wasn't the panacea. Uh, what I personally do is I use serial ultrasound measurements. I think that's a better predictor in terms of uh, the degree of dilation. And certainly renal scan does have its role, but I think it's limited. I think it, I use it personally for P3 or SFU grade four, or for select, select cases of P2 or SFU3, where you're following a patient for uh, 
several years. I, I'll spot check for function in essence and, and assure that I have adequate drainage. Some patients, it plays a role for provocative testing. So if you have a 10-year-old with intermittent UPJ, you may want to use that. Uh, some of these patients um, that have a fairly significant dilation that haven't presented until the teenage years uh, certainly may not have adequate function to, to make, make it worthwhile to undergo a pyoplasty, and they may be better served with a nephrectomy. So that's the other group I use it in. The Ultrasound uh, lends itself to following patients that have uh, moderate to high-grade disease. Uh, certainly, the SFU grade, I think, is a great predictor of function. And if you look at this study that was done by Erickson at uh, Chicago, I think it details this. This is a group that they followed. All patients had SFU grade 3, and 33 out of 3 33 of this group had preserved function when they did a renal scan. This is in contrast to the SFU4 group where only uh, 27 out of 38 had greater than 40% function. So again, I think it's a great predictor of function. And, and when this came out, this was uh, the, some of the data that I used in terms of my personal practice to, to, to not perform a renal scan on every patient that, that has significant dilation. Now, uh, more recent studies have looked at this, and uh, this is focusing, again, on serial ultrasound with respect to, to renal function. So this was retrospective, not the best, obviously, but they looked at 85 kids that had severe kidney dilation. And so with the, the severe kidney dilation, mean follow-up was around 12 months, and an increasing grade over that interval occurred in about 12% of patients increase in dilation in one-third. So again, the, the grading's different than just patients that had increased dilation. They found a decrease by 5% of function and uh, about 17% of those kids. Uh, now the question is, what's the significance of a 5% decrease in function? Uh, you know, what's the error rate in, in the region of interest and those sorts of things? But nonetheless, they found that most patients had preservation of renal function, had stable or decreased urinary tract dilation, and none of the patients with decreased dilation had decreased function, uh, whereas half of the patients with increased dilation had decreased function. So again, th this does uh, create a, a, a paradigm where if you're following patients serially and you see that there's an increase, you need to promptly go to a renal scan now, does it change the, the, the algorithm with respect to multiple renal scans? I think currently there's no consensus on this, and most of us, it's kind of up to the practitioner to decide that. So moving on to, to UPJ repair, uh, we all know there's different modalities, and, and this is more geared for the residents. Uh, I do offer all modalities to the patients. I haven't done a laparoscopic repair since I was in Alabama a number of years ago, um, but uh, nonetheless, all of these have essentially the same um, uh, reoperative rate, and it's uh, anywhere from three to 5%. And if, when choosing which repair to do, I think you have to look at what you're looking at. So there's no question that it's quicker and it costs less to do an open pyoplasty. If 
But in terms of time, robot is better than lap, which most of us would understand. And lap is less costly than robot. With respect to pain, I think lap and robot do offer an advantage. Personally, that's probably at age five or older. In terms of cosmesis, without question, uh, the little bitty port sites that you place uh, heal better than an open incision. Uh, the incisions that, that you make as a baby may be you know, two and a half centimeters or two centimeters, but they grow with the patient. So I think it's reasonable if you have the ability to do this robotically, that if you have a similar outcome, but a better cosmesis, it's, it's reasonable to offer this. Now certainly with respect to teaching, when you make these tiny incisions and you essence bring up the renal pelvis and then you operate and you push it back down, you don't really teach that much. Uh, the residents looking from the other side of the table, sometimes they can't even see as you're dissecting the peritoneum if you're doing it retroperitoneally off the, off the renal pelvis. It's hard for them to see. When you do this robotically, it's night and day. And when you have two consoles, certainly you can go back and forth and, and they, it's easier to let them uh, participate in the operation. Now, this is a uh, practice pattern uh, survey. Uh, Jess Jackson, one of my former residents, helped me with this. And the idea here was to look at different ages. So this is a five-month-old with high-grade kidney dilation, a two-year-old with high-grade kidney dilation, and a 10-year-old with intermittent UPJ. So the questions were basically, would you do this open robot or lab? And so the results were not too surprising, but 80% of the patients excuse me, of the, uh, the respondents, which again, this response rate was in the high 70s. So, so it was very representative sample. About 80% of us would do an open pyeloplasty for a five-month-old. Whereas if the age was two, it's only about 50%, but still about 20%, which is a little surprising, a 10-year-old would do an open pyeloplasty. Now this changed significantly as the age of the patient uh, changed. So it, again, if you look at Robotics, about 50% of folks would use this with respect um, to a uh, two-year-old and about 50% in a 10-year-old. So if you kind of combine minimally invasive and open, I think it's, it's more in line with what you would expect, about 80% for a 10-year-old, around 50% for a two-year-old. But a five-month-old, around 20% still are, are recommending robotic pyeloplasty um, my current threshold is one year of age. And I used to measure things. I don't really do that anymore. I think if you have an umbilical port, sub-xiphoid port, and then a port just off the bladder. Sorry for this Army helicopter flying over. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, if you have your port just off the bladder, I tend to, to put this... Uh, um, more ipsilateral towards the pathology because when, you know, the arm's coming from the other side, uh, you want to hit the hip. And I've really found um, no issues with that uh, one year and older. Now, many could argue, well, what's the benefit? I can't really give you a reasonable answer, except that, uh, you know, I do most of the robotics here and, and it's just a, um, in terms of patient preference, and certainly I do often offer open as well. Now, what I'm going to do here is kind of transition, and, and these are um, 
cases of, of UPJ-like urinary tract dilation, and I thought they would be uh, kind of need to go over. They all have a different outcome. So this patient EM presented with A2 or increased risk urinary tract dilation at the third trimester. And we recommended prophylaxis. Circumcision was performed. Ultrasound was performed at eight months of age. This is the left kidney here. And again, for the junior residents, these, this is not dilation. This is translucidity of the renal pyramids. This is the right kidney, this is dilation, and this is debris within the right kidney. Bladder looks normal. So that was at eight hours. So again, prophylaxis, ultrasound VCG at one month. VCUG, this is a male, and although uh, urethra looks normal, bladder, no ureter seal, there's no reflux. Left kidney still uh, normal. Right kidney increased dilation compared. And I'll pause here, and when I have an ultrasound at a month, I tell the families, as opposed to this is increased from what we looked at at uh, eight hours, I tell the family that this is more representative of the actual state of the kidney. Uh, you know, during that first 24 to 48 to 72 hours, you have uh, a lot of uh, third spacing and uh, the babies are not dehydrated, but that third spacing does impact intravascular volume and, and kidney dilation. So I tell the parents that usually at that first ultrasound that it may change, that that's more of what it represents of its natural state, not that it's increased. Nonetheless, this kidney clearly has thin parenchyma and dilation in APD of measure 16. So this would be a P3. And again, I wouldn't jump on this surgically. I tend to drag my feet because uh, if you look at Lewis's data, even a lot of these P3s can dissolve. So I'd do an ultrasound or renal scan at three months of age. And here's the studies. Again, the bladder's normal. Right kidney looks about the same. APD has now increased. It now measures 26. Left kidney remains normal. Uh, functions decreased. It's at 42. The drainage curve, again, uh, in PEATS, we don't really look at the times as much as we used to. You know, when I was a fellow in, in the early 2000 or 2001, we looked at this. We don't look at this now. Uh, we look more at the curve. You can see for the green, that's the left kidney. It's, it's uh, I'm sorry, the green here is um, the uh, region of interest to, to, to um, that they're measuring here. but. Nonetheless, the red curve shows that this clearly is not draining. And in essence, is infinity. And the green, uh, the left kidney is already drained. I don't have that to demonstrate to you on the slideshow. So in summary, this is a four-month-old with progressive dilation of the right kidney. It's increased to 26 millimeters by four months of age. Decreased function down to 42%. So I like to proceed with surgery. So the the take-home message here is that early surgery is rare, but it does occur. And those are kids that the typical patient that we see prenatally may have fairly severe dilation, but it tends to improve. So if it's increasing, that's an outlier. And that's probably going to be those kids that, that we think need to have something done surgically. And certainly if they had decreased function, now this patient was 42, but 
I put less than 40, that's kind of the general rule. Some people use 45. I typically use 40 or increased dilation. Then those are patients that we would proceed ahead with surgical intervention. Next patient, CB, seen at one month of age. History similar, uh, prenatal A23 at third trimester on prophylaxis, not circumcised. One week ultrasound. Here's the right kidney again, dilated, not quite the thickness of the previous patient. APD is 21. And the I'll answer all the questions here when I'm done. I just saw that there are questions. Um, left kidney, I'd call this P1. I can't, let's see. No, I can't. Okay, so one week uh, postnatal BCUG, in essence, is normal. The urethra is normal, there's no reflux, bladder looks normal. So an ultrasound was performed at three months of age and a renal scan, 44%. And when you look at the drainage curve, a little bit different. Now again, I just told you we don't use the T1 half, so T1 half here is 16. I look at this as a dilated, fairly large kidney. You have to remember all these less than 10, greater than 20, all those values were not done on the uh, compliant neonatal renal pelvis. Uh, they were done on teenagers, so I don't think those values apply to these, these little babies. And so I just look at this like a gestalt, and you can see that things are decreasing. Now, the one thing that I do now is I will do a uh, post-image upright scan or a post-one-hour uh, test after the renal scan, and I would compare that value to this value here. And what your radionuclide doctor can do is they can do a comparison test that in essence they do for gastric emptying. So you'll have your 40 minute area and then let's say you would have it at an hour and they would quantitate the, the difference in those two. So if you had a drop off of 90% between those two, even though the curve is prolonged and the T1 half prolonged, you can surmise that's probably draining. And then you have patients, those two numbers are about the same or they decrease by just a little bit, 10%. Those patients may be obstructed. Uh, we haven't really looked at that academically. I think uh, Menage's group out of DC, they published their work about a year and a half ago looking at that. So I think that's something that you can add to complement the renal scan when it's a little bit confusing, indeterminate curve large renal pelvis that just may take a lot of time to empty. So this patient had a renal ultrasound at 10 months. This looks about the same with respect to dilation and parenchymal thickness. APD, 23, about the same. So I repeated the renal scan, and you can see the function now is at 51%. Again, this, I don't think it increased. It just brings in the fact that you're gonna have a different number because you this is all created by the the region of interest curve that you're drawing and so you have to remember that when we look at numbers of 45 40 those sorts of things drainage curve almost identical so this is a patient that in essence i'm just following and 
it does speak to dilation and renal thickness thinning, parenchymal thinning doesn't always speak to obstruction. And so I, I do use a drop off of 5% threshold in this situation. And I think that's in line with what you saw that study that recently came out that we went over before. Last patient I see, they presented at four weeks with the history of ultrasound of ECU were performed. Ultrasound at three days of age demonstrated uh, what I would say is P2 urinary tract dilation of the uh, calosial system with normal parenchyma, no thinning. Left kidney remained normal. VCUG is normal, although as an aside, when you look at a VCU like this and you can see the catheter within the bladder, that tells you they didn't empty all the urine before they put the contrast in there. So that's just kind of a take home pearl, if you will, that uh, when you see that, you may not see reflux because unfortunately it's all diluted. Um, and, and the key to that is you can see the catheter here. You shouldn't be able to see that, it should be opaque to the degree that the contrast um, opacifies the, the, the catheter. So this is the renal scan on this patient, and you can see function is good, 45% T1 half, uh, certainly not obstructive, and you can see that the drainage here as well. So they were lost to follow up, and then the surgeon whose patient this was moved, and so the patient was being followed by the primary care physician and basically uh, followed up with me because the physician noticed they hadn't had an ultrasound in four years. So this was the ultrasound. And again, parenchymal thickness is pretty good. APD now is 53. This looks like a balloon that's about to pop. This patient's totally asymptomatic, no symptoms at all. No blood in the urine, no infection, no flank pain. So I got a renal scan and it shows function 36%. And if you look at the curve, much different than it was before. So they underwent a pyoplasty and an ultrasound at six weeks. Now, um, part of that survey I did with uh, Jess Jackson that we looked at, one of the questions I asked was use of postnatal renal scintigraphy. And there was uh, 1.5% get a renal scan post-op uh, regardless. So most of us follow kids with renal ultrasound. And this is case in point. This is the patient's renal ultrasound post-op, much different, clearly uh, not obstructed. And even though they didn't have symptoms pre-op, I feel comfortable not obtaining a renal scan in this situation. To quantitate function, you could argue, but I'm not really going to do anything with it and it's invasive and all the other things that we know about. Plus, the real issue is that these usually aren't done, you know, within a children's hospital at all places. So this is done at the adult center, at least in Richmond. And so it's just sometimes not done the way we want it done. So what's the future of UPG obstruction? Uh, I think APD diameter of 15 millimeters during the third trimester still will be something that we hang our hat on. P3, UTD, and SFU4 are predictive of UPD obstruction. Again, that 15 is just, uh, it's sensitive. It's not highly specific, but it's, you, know, you need to keep that patient on your radar. 
When indicated, fortunately, all types of surgical repair are highly successful regardless of the technique. Now, circling back to this flow diagram, again, it quantitates risk. And I speak to the patients, I don't tell them the dilation anymore, number. I kind of say you're in your P1 or low risk, intermediate, high risk. Um, we, with the registry, do have data now that can help us uh, kind of better clarify the role of antibiotics and the use of imaging. So for P1, we have very good data. We know they're at low risk of UTI, and therefore we no longer recommend antibiotics. We know that it doesn't really help this group. We don't recommend VCUG, and follow-up is three to six months. We know that they uh, have a, a resolution curve uh, between two and four years, essentially all patients will resolve. For P2, we really don't have a consensus on this group. This is one we're actively looking at. We do have data uh, that, that, for instance, that I shared with, with the respect to the uh, lack of utility of prophylaxis for UTD, but the role with ureteral dilation is still up to debate. So at this point, it's physician discretion with respect to the use of prophylaxis of VCUG, and uh, the timing is one to three months with ultrasound, mainly because this can progress. With P3, most of us still are using prophylaxis. We do a VCUG, certainly. Uh, I'm speaking here to unilateral kidney dilation. This is not patients that we feel may have lateral outlet obstruction. Okay, so this is just for uh, unilateral kidney dilation. So in summary, the registry has allowed us to uh, predictively identify those patients uh, that will resolve or have infections with P1. The role of prophylaxis uh, is still unclear for uh, some patients with UTD, mainly those uh, P2 and P3 classification. Recommendations for VCG and other imaging should be evidence-based and based on the risk of UTI as opposed to the uh, other risk. And risk factors for UTI include female, gender, intact foreskin, high-grade kidney dilation, and based on more recent data, appears to be dilated ureteral reflux. And I wanted to thank everyone. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the talk. It's difficult not seeing a bunch of faces when you're giving a talk. Um, so I, I hope everyone enjoyed this and I see we have quite the group on here which is great and at this point I was going to answer some questions and so I have two up here and so I'm going to read them I don't know what the format is um, Michelle but uh, the first one is um, from Andika and and they write, sometimes in my country, the UPG obstruction came in older without any data on prenatal APD. Is there any cutoff of APD in older children that should operate compared to just observation? Good question. So most of these patients uh, will come in with symptoms. So if I have a patient come in with DDoS crisis, that's what we would classify as an intermittent UPG. And some, if the parenchyma looks fairly normal, uh, then I will not obtain a renal scan. I don't think that's an absolute. And I'll give you a scenario. So if the patient comes in, to the C, gets a CT in the ER because for whatever reason they got a CT scan, 
and there's a clear UPJ obstruction. Uh, and then you see the patient at two weeks with an ultrasound and the dilation has significantly decreased. I feel comfortable classifying that as an intermittent UPJ, no need for renal scan. Those patients I do operate on, and there's very good data, the natural history of that patient, they will, the, the interval of time between DDoS crises will decrease to the point where they're on top of each other. It's much easier to operate when that settles down to capture that patient in a window where uh, there's no inflammation. Frequently, that's not the first episode. And when you operate on these patients, there'll be this rind of tissue that you basically have to cut through to get down to, to the renal pelvis. Uh, a majority of these patients <laughs> will have um, uh, a crossing vessel. So it's a little bit more challenging to dissect through that rind and then identify the uh, crossing vessel and then cut the crossing vessel, bring that up. Um, and so that, that's where I don't really look at the APD to answer the question. Um, I look more at the presentation. Now, I did have a recent patient that presented like that and the hydro did not change on follow-up and the parenchyma was pretty darn thin. And this is gonna answer the second question by Anand, what's your renal scan cut off for nephrectomy? So this patient came back and the renal function was 7% and it was a 14 year old. So that patient's going to have a nephrectomy. So the question is, what's the threshold? I think there's no, uh, you know, the adults, it's 20%, at least that's what I was trained. For kids, I think it's different. I think uh, it depends on the age. And uh, I cannot recall ever doing a preemptive nephrectomy on a patient that's a, a neonate or you know, a two-year-old. Whereas certainly you have to factor that in to the older patient. Um, I've had four patients I've revised the pyoplasty. Uh, one of these was open. Uh, two of these, la uh, one laparoscopic and two robotic. And the, one of the robotic was a torsion. When you bring up the renal pelvis, you can just be careful you're not torsing. The other was an old patient, an older patient that had adequate function based on the adult standard, but the kidney was so massively dilated, despite the fact that it was open, it wouldn't drain. And I had to come back and do a ureterocalicostomy and the patient drained wonderfully with that. So uh, David Joseph, one of my mentors, taught me what's called the towel test. And so that's when you decompress the kidney. And let's say it's a threshold in your mind, mind somewhere around 15%. Let's say you decompress the kidney and you can actually roll it up like a towel. That, that's, I guess, what was taught in the 80s before all these renal scans for those patients actually didn't drain that well. You have to think through it. There's gotta be a degree of distension and then pressure to go down through your anastomosis. So um, I would say mine's around 15%, but it has to do with there's another kidney on the other side, the age of the patient. And the younger the patient, I sometimes would go through what David Joseph would call a two-stage nephrectomy where you give them the benefit of the doubt, but if it doesn't train, you come back and, and do an nephrectomy. Um, thanks, Nora. Love the jacket. <laughs> so 
Um, so for IC patient, no, that, that was not a duplex uh, urethra. I think that was uh, uh, where it was running down in terms of the contrast. <laughs> would you do a vascular hitch? So from Ali, would you do a vascular hitch? That's an interesting question. Um, I mentioned uh, that I've had four revisions. I think I have a fifth coming up. And I, I was on this movement towards doing vascular hitch in teenagers. And I've got one that's not draining that well. And I think it's because of this rind that you get where you have someone that presents with a late intermittent UPGA. And so you have to cut through all this rind of tissue to get to the kidney. And this was one was a perfect setup, I thought. And I mobilized everything. I could push the and the vascular hitch is you have the renal pelvis here and and basically your UPJ is where my thumb is and you can push everything down let's see I need to do this opposite push it down to where now the UPJ is below and you can wrap the pelvis around this fork and it should drain this patient and that's a really gross uh, uh, description there but in any event this patient isn't draining that well. And I think it's because um, this rind is probably so inflamed that, that it's preventing it from draining. Interestingly, I put a stent in because of all this COVID. I was going to get a renal scan. I was right at the height of all this. So now I'm not sure what I'm gonna do. I'll probably do a renal scan with the stent and then take it out, repeat it, and then go from there. But, uh, in terms of ureterocalicostomy, I do not uh, clamp the vessels at all. These kids with these late presentations almost have translucent calyces and renal parenchyma. And it's not the classic uh, textbook where you're cutting through normal renal parenchyma. This is almost you're opening up a little window. Um, I, I do make it fairly sizable. I put in a large stent. Uh, I leave the stent in for eight weeks. Um, but it's different, so I don't think you need to clamp the vessels at all. So at what age do you perform pyoplasty if decreased function was identified at one month by Robert? Um, again, I purposefully defer this out to three months. I think um, if you look at complications from open pyoplasty, the younger the patient, I think the higher. The neonatal ureter, even at one month, is different than a three month. The further out you get, I think you'll have better outcomes. And certainly, I'm hard pressed to believe that deferring something that's been present prenatally, you know, in essence, since the 12th uh, week, waiting two more months is going to really have a, a big impact. And I think the other aspect is anesthesia risk are significantly better at three months than one month. So I don't really get it at one month. So my threshold would be like the first, uh, first patient. If it's, and again, this allows for multiple ultrasounds and I can't stress this enough. So that presentation was intentional, the first patient. That patient had three ultrasounds. And again, at one month, I think that's steady state, but the second ultrasound had an increase. It went from, you know, I think 15 to 26 or 16 to 26, in essence, uh, a 50% increase in two months, and the function was 42. So, so those two together, that's an outlier. And so I'm gonna operate on that patient. And I was trained to get this at a month. So, uh, but I just think 
there's no harm in waiting two more months. You get one more ultrasound. And I have seen it turn around. And so that's where, although it's decreased, I think if you have, um, and when I say decreased, it's, it's not like these kids less than 40%. I'm saying it, it's whatever, 44%, 45%. And you have decreasing dilation. As I demonstrated in the second ultrasound, for whatever reason, the function is increased. And again, this is probably more of uh, the fallacy in, in measuring the renal function. We all know that's not uh, the best use of the renal scan, the MAC-3. Certainly a DMSA would be much better. And for those residents, the renal, the MAG-3 is only from one side. So it's, it's an AP. So when we do a DMSA, it's an AP and a PA. Because if the kidney's sitting like this, it's fine with an AP. But if it's like this, then you're only going to get one. You're, not, you're losing the bottom part of the kidney because this part is closer to the, the camera than, than this part. So it'll look like it has less function. Whereas it's averaged out on a DMSA because they take an AP and a PA and they kind of mash it together. So you could argue, well, why don't you get a DMSA? That's a good argument. Um, but I think I, I still like to look at that drainage curve as well. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.